I met Christian Medina a few years ago at PyCon. He's the author of a great blog called Triaxite Pass and is fighting the good fight to document and teach how to do things right. He wrote an article recently called Test Engineering Anti-Patterns, Destroy Your Customer Satisfaction and Crater Your Quality by Using These Nine Easy Organizational Practices. Of course, it's sarcastic and aims to highlight the many problems with organizational practices that reduce software quality. I asked Christian to come on the show to discuss it. The article doesn't go out of character and only promotes the anti-patterns. However, in this interview, we discuss each point and the corollary of what you really should do, at least our perspectives. Now, Christian and I don't completely see eye to eye on all of this. Mostly, but not completely. I really love talking with people who are passionate about making great software, creating great processes and great teams, and improving things when they're not so great. Even if we disagree, the motivation to improve the status quo unites us more than our differences. Okay, I think I actually made it sound like we diverge more than we really did, and it's just really a small divergence. Just have a listen and get hold of me if you'd like to have your shot to give your perspective. Thank you to Patreon supporters for your continued support of the show. Join them at testandcode.com slash support. Thank you to the wonderful people in the Slack channel at testandcode.com slash Slack for tirelessly helping each other out with software testing and PyTest questions. I am truly humbled by the generosity of the regulars in this channel. Thank you to Azure Pipelines for sponsoring this episode. Many organizations and open source projects are using Azure Pipelines already. Get started for free at azure.com slash pipelines. Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. Today on Testing Code, I am thrilled to have Christian Medina on. Hi, Brian. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. I'm Chris Medina. I've been uh, working some form of professional engineering job for almost 20 years now, and uh, I've been using Python for a good portion of that, and a lot of that time of my career has been doing uh, something with a test organization, whether test design or test practices or uh, test tooling. And uh, lately, I have been putting a lot of effort into um, my own website, Pass, trying to cover development best practices and stuff like that. Yeah, you've been putting out some really cool articles on there. Yeah, trying to keep a schedule. And uh, with some artwork, Yes, sir. I hired an illustrator through uh, Upwork. He's working out very well. We kind of picked this uh, tinkerer theme. The idea is you're, the, the main idea of Accept Pass is don't be afraid to try stuff. And here's all the different things you can try. And um, so f- I figured this tinkerer thing went with it pretty well. And I'm pretty happy with what he's been doing. Yeah, it's good. Cool. One of the th- reasons why I wanted to have you on was because you wrote this uh, I th- amusingly titled article called uh, Test Engineering Anti-Patterns. Destroy your customer satisfaction and crater your quality by using these nine easy organizational practices. So Yes, sir. Clearly you are being facetious and uh, yep. not not really advocating for this, right? Right. So what happened is um, I was listening to another podcast called Developer T, and they had this episode about how to be a bad manager. 
And in it, um, the host talked about how it's interesting to look at things from a different perspective sometimes. And um, I like sarcasm, so uh, I had loads of fun trying to do that and uh, wrote this post for as it applied to test organizations. Okay. Um, it's amusing. And I, I'll have some questions. Can we, are you okay with if we just walk through these? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Um, so uh, the first one is make the test teams solely responsible for quality. Right. Yeah. So uh, what, it, what do you mean awesome. by that? It's awesome when um, in in a, in a large organization, right? So a lot of this stuff uh, applies to larger organizations, not like, you know, five to ten people uh, teams, but something larger where you have a proper development team, a test team, marketing, and all this stuff. So it's always interesting when uh, a lot of times in, in big companies, they think of tests, well, you guys own quality. So that means if there's any problem, it's your fault, right? But yet, the test organization might or might not have um, a lot of say in uh, what goes into the product, what the schedule is, or how that product ships, right? So here, essentially, I'm outlining very pretty much that. Um, you know, you can you make the test team responsible, but just make sure that they don't get um, any say in how to put what what features to put in the product or how to define those features. And make sure the sales guys are the ones that define your target dates. Make sure the marketing guys define the features. And uh, this way you you spread the responsibilities around, meaning you'll need more communication between all the different teams to make sure that everything works out correctly. And that's one way of guaranteeing problems, which is the objective of the article, right? <laughs> okay. Well, but, okay, so the counter is um, you want everybody to be responsible for quality, right? Correct. It's, it should be shared responsibility, and you should have less of this um, arguing. Like I have some examples of the stuff that people will start arguing in meetings, right? You you want you want it to be more about well, this problem happened. Let's figure out why it happened, and let's fix it and move on, and just avoid the blame game and all that stuff because it just leads to um, politics and tribalism and yeah and you'll you'll find organizations doing things to try to protect themselves from that argument versus doing what's best for the product or the company yeah and it, this is not unusual to have here a comment like when there's a customer issue or or an issue that some other team found hearing the question of well, I thought you tested it. why didn't you test that case? There's a million test cases you could right. test you can't test right. everything. This episode of Test and Code is sponsored by Azure Pipelines. Azure Pipelines is a continuous integration, continuous delivery service that supports Python and any other language on Windows, Mac, and Linux and lets you run automatic builds and tests for your code. It is fully integrated with GitHub and lets you define your continuous integration and delivery pipelines with a very simple YAML document. Azure Pipelines is free for individuals and small teams. If you are maintaining an open source project, you get unlimited build minutes and 10 concurrent pipelines. Many organizations and open source projects are using Azure Pipelines already, including yours truly. Automate your builds and deployments with pipelines so you spend less time with the nuts and bolts and more time being creative. Get started for free at azure.com slash pipelines. That's A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash pipelines. So number two actually is a little bit controversial, I think. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you're getting right into it right away. 
Number two, require all tests be automated before releasing. Right. And to me, the uh, the main thing is that distracts from the actual feature you're trying to release and the workflow, especially the workflow for for your user. When you require it and you require it before you release, that means that now everybody is in the critical path to get a fi- uh, feature out. Whereas before, say you're doing iterative development, right? You can maybe put the feature out and test it out a little bit, uh, even with some portion of your user base, and then iterate on it and make it better as it goes, right? But when you, if if you're still doing that and you just spent a bunch of time and man hours building a bunch of automated tests for that one feature, and all of a sudden you realize you got to iterate on it, now well now you got to iterate on all those tests, right? And when you're talking, um, you know, customer level tests, a lot of that stuff gets uh, pretty complicated into how, you know the types of workflows and the different iterations of each one of the workflows and and it's just very time consuming so so it's a great way if if you do this it's a great way to sink a bunch of time in trying to develop this stuff which you'll likely have to change in the next couple of iterations so might as well except doing the testing just kind of do it manually first and do some exploratory stuff or I've been in orgs where they call it artistic testing, um, where you're just fiddling around with the UI, to, and then later um, in future iterations, bring in the fully automate, full automation on the test, as you know what the better workflows are going to be to automate. Okay, so as the feature solidifies and it starts becoming one of the legacy features, then you still would want probably to build in some automation to make sure it doesn't break. Okay, if we had an idea like we had a continuous continuous integration workflow that tried to validate all the features mm-hmm. if some of the features aren't tested um they're not going to get caught so you really need you do need to have some some manual stick time uh if you're not automating everything right right yeah. right you still need to do that so um and and one way to do that would be to in your continuous integration system to have um you know a a, a review requirement or a status check from and, and I've done I've done both where uh, you you need an extra check from the person who's doing the manual stuff, and that check might just be they type something into a CLI that goes and updates your your CI to say, yep, I approve this to go on. Okay. The next one is number three: require 100% code coverage. This is also dependent on what size of your code base it is. And that's uh, true, and also controversial, right? Because uh, you know we want code coverage, but what code coverage measures are all the different paths in your in the execution of a function getting exercised when you run your tests. The the problem is that when you start measuring for that and like making it a big deal to measure for that, you can wind up in people writing tests just to call the functions, just to improve the numbers instead of making meaningful tests that actually do something useful. Yeah. You know, it's like playing a video game where everybody's trying to uh, get the maximum damage output and they start padding their numbers, killing something doesn't really matter yeah. just to make it look better. Yeah, I've had a like a love-hate relationship with code coverage numbers. I tend to use them more near the end when I think I have uh, complete behavior coverage. At that point, taking a look to see if there's maybe some some paths through the system that I didn't think about, or maybe even some code that does can't be hit because it's just actually dead code, um, and maybe we could take it out. The the main point is when you're looking at whether you're ready to ship or or how what's the process or how things are doing just looking at the number doesn't really convey a lot of info if you're saying 
last time we were at 20% coverage and this time we're at 30%, and that has some usefulness to it. Relative coverage numbers are more interesting than just a, a number, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, next up is number four, isolate the test organization from development. This is sort of related to number one. True. And and the uh, the more isolation, the better. Uh, I encourage physical isolation as well so that people have to physically get up to talk to each other and walk all the way to the other side of the building if they need to, preferably a different building. <laughs> <laughs> the real advice is people writing the test could either be the developers or be sitting right next to them. Right. And and the advantages of, of, of just people intermingling just because you have lunch with somebody just because you're sitting next to you and you're like, oh, I'm going for lunch like completely drastically changes your relationship with, with uh, that, that person and its team and, and his team or their organization, right? Um, and, and having a, a, that, that in, interrelation makes it so that you give people heads up uh, about a lot of things going on. Like the developer can be like, oh, I'm tweaking this here. You should check your test that is related to this versus just, oh, here's a new release and you don't say anything and all of a sudden all your tests are broken. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I actually love some of your uh, some of your points about what c- collaboration might lead to. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you have to be careful because if you collaborate too much, the test engineers might actually know about the product. Yes, <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> we, yeah, we don't we don't want the test folks to know know much about how the product works or how it's used because otherwise, if they do, then you'll get you know better quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in your experience. Have you had more time in kind of a, a mixed uh, environment with uh, people writing tests sitting right next to the developers, or are you are you more experienced with uh, the separation? So most of my career was with the separation. Over the past several years, I I was working on projects that had them all intermixed, okay. and that was fantastic. Um, you get you get to the point. You know, like as a developer, you can even hook things in such a way so that you even know when the tests are getting executed and you get like notified about stuff and you'll fix it before the tester can even like come over and talk to you about it. Like that, that that's always fun too. <laughs> You're like, oh, hey, I had this problem. I was like, yeah, try it again. What do you mean? Oh, I know you hit this and that and, you know, I got an event. And so yeah, just, just try it again. Oh, it's working now. Okay. I don't remember if you addressed this in the article or not, but. Just the notion that there's different people writing tests than are developing. Do you have any opinions on that? So I, I prefer a mix on that. Personally, I would write my code and ask someone else to write the test for it. And I would give them more or less what to write. Especially if you wrote and you know the way that something's supposed to work, it's hard for your brain to just kind of break out of that box and say, oh, well, I'll try to do it this other way. So you always want to have some input from a, let's call a testing expert, into how your tests are designed. But that doesn't mean that the, the QA has to be the only one writing all the tests or that the developer has to be the only one writing all the tests. It's also good to have the developer write the test so that they know the complexities of having to put that test together because a lot of times they don't realize how complicated it, 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 it sometimes is, especially with large systems, for the test just to like even run the code to be able to do a test, right? Yeah. Okay. I do see a different mindset of trying to break things. That can be a helpful mindset, and it it is kind of nice to have 
developers think about that too. We also don't want to spend too much time chasing down a rabbit hole that really is never going to happen. Right. So that's why you want that that communication, and you want that you want people to think both ways. And if you have one that primarily thinks one way, one that primarily thinks the other way, and they talk often, like they're jointly responsible for putting something out, right? You'll even get things like designed for testability, right? Like if I write it this way, then it'll be easier to test it. If I write my test this way, then I'll be touching these these pieces over here, but is that ever going to be something that's even possible, right? Yeah, I've seen seen cases where just the question coming up early of, how do I verify that that is working? The answer sometimes requires an extra helper function or a debug function being added so that we can query different parts of the system that aren't, aren't necessarily useful for a user, but, but are necessary to validate that something's going on correctly. Right. Yeah. Okay, right. let's move on. Uh, your fifth one is... Measure the success of the process, not the product. This is funny. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Like, uh, if, you know, a lot of times people, people spend a lot of time measuring things in, in, in when you're trying to do especially complex stuff, right? But it's so, it's true. It's been true everywhere that I have worked in that you get what you measure. So if you measure the, the number of customer complaints or the, or, you know, quality from an external user, usage point of view, then you'll get better quality and, and less customer com- uh, complaints. But if you measure the internal parts of how you produce or, or release code, there's a, a few things you can get caught up with that then just kind of you, you lose sight of the, of the whole purpose of what you're actually doing, which is to release some product or service that someone else is using, not your internal organization. Encouraging test engineers to produce lots of defect. And if they haven't, maybe they're doing something wrong, but they, they could be just working closely with the development team exactly. and fixing things before it even gets into the issue process. Exactly. Yeah. That actually happens to me in some uh, past experiences where um question was asked oh, what is qa doing they're not writing issues I'm like what do you mean they're testing stuff i'm fixing all the problem I'm like but there's no issues to document the problem i'm like uh okay <laughs> we can spend a bunch of time doing that if you want to but then that distracts from everything else yeah even just a simple like typing something up to have me close it the next day is a, a waste of time if it's going to get fixed anyway yeah. right but those are easy to measure. Actually, measuring that coordination is going smoothly and that the product is working, that's hard to measure. <laughs> it's hard. Therefore, we measure the easy stuff. Yeah, and then we fix the wrong things. Yeah. Uh, a couple of interesting uh, things is that I've seen measured in the past is uh, your response times. You know, somebody will go off and write some some defect process, right? And you need to, and it says, well, a defect when you write it must go from this open state to this assigned state to this um, working state to this, you know, whatever, verify, close kind of thing. And at some point, some of those state changes um, require, uh, you know, somebody says, oh, it shouldn't be in this state for more than this much amount of time, right? And so then all that does is it makes people just... Um, move things across uh, between states as often as possible, sometimes before meetings, right? So there's, I know there's a status meeting tomorrow about the state of this defect and it's, it's in, it's in return state, which means I'm in QA and I need to do something, but let me reopen it real quick saying I need something else from development so that it shows up and it's in development's court next, next go around, right? You're like, we're just wasting time on a bunch of process stuff, right? I mean, you can just be doing something useful. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, those are silly. And often people, the people coming up with the process for which state things are and what they mean are not the same people that have to use it. So sometimes, sometimes these states are meaningless. Yep. And, and yeah, and so you wind up giving the process more, more importance than the actual product. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that, um, has happened to me before is having, I, I just meet that, you know, play with some code and then I talk to somebody and say, Oh, this, this doesn't work right. Right. And, um, you, I, I get that if they're in the middle of something and they can't address it right away, that it would be more helpful for the process. If I submit an issue, I get that. But, uh, if it's something they can just fix right away, um, there are some people that won't fix anything unless you file an issue. That's um, true. And even though, even if the process has no weight, uh, but, oh, well, um, we're, we're working on quality software, not a perfect process, right? Right. Yeah. Um, another, another favorite of mine is the pass rate. It's like, what percent pass rate do we have? We'll only exit our, or release our code when we hit 98% pass rate. By the way, I don't, almost every org I've been in uses 98% for some reason, I, whatever, but, um, Oh, I can get that's to ninety-eight percent easy. That's uh, like yeah, I can write a hundred tests and pass ninety-eight of them. Yeah, yeah, and I just are. I could duplicate uh, easy tests that I know we're going to pass with you know a slightly different input um, and call them new test cases. And or I've got a handful of failing cases, test cases. I can combine those into one test, and it reduces my failure rate. That's correct, and then. <laughs> And then that's why, like, whenever I go to the status meetings and stuff like that, I, I, I ask about um, what are the qualifiers to all this stuff. Or like, oh, we're, you know, 98% pass. Yeah, but what are those two tests that fail? If, if test number one, one of those tests was installing my application. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or the Maybe main, we have a really big problem. Or the main thing that we're trying to advertise or promote for this release, and that's the thing that's broken. That's a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, so a better measure, um, I think, is just uh, having the team more involved and with the entire process, understanding all, all the features that we're trying to push out and just a confidence level. How does everybody feel about it? Are you comfortable with getting pushing this out for customers? Do you think things are going to be okay? Um, and, and I know that's a little, sort of a mushy, touchy-feely sort of measurement, and you can't quantize it very easily. But um, I, I think it's more accurate. I, when I ask the team, are you comfortable? Do you think it's solid enough to go to customers? Then I will hear things like, oh, well, there's this one issue that really should be fixed. And it might even be like labeled a normal level or something, you know, medium severity. Sure. Like, why is this not critical? Well, it doesn't really crash the box, but, you know, it's just wrong and it's annoying. Uh, well, then we need to fix it. Uh, we, yeah, I agree. Anyway. Uh, okay. Where are we at? Five moving towards six, moving towards six. So six is require granular projections from engineers. What do you mean by that? I mean, Brian, what day are you going to be done with this feature? Is <laughs> it tomorrow? I, I want a date. I, I don't no, You can't tell me October. <laughs> you can't tell me the last week of October. You need to tell me October 29th by end of the day. I will be complete. I'm going to pat it by a month then. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But but when you do that, Brian, I'm going to bring it up with the whole team and I'm going to say, "Hey guys, 
do you really think that this this uh, amount of time that Brian has said he's going to spend developing this feature should be 15 days, however long that was? Yeah. Right? And then you'll find a bunch of people start arguing. And it all just start, it starts arguing. The people just start arguing between themselves. They're like, no, you can do this in so many days. You can do that in so many days. I'm like, you know, if, if these days I, I try, I like the iterative model of development. It seems to work pretty well. So to me, the granular stuff just kind of make makes that almost impossible. Um, and just in general, like if I'm writing a function that's going to print something onto the screen, yeah, I can tell you how long it's going to take me to do that. But if I'm writing some sort of complex system, which is the usual thing that happens um, in the real world, it's really hard, especially when you're c- communicating with like third-party libraries and you have dependencies on hardware or, you know, deployment strategies and all this type of stuff to know how all that's, whether all that stuff is going to line up as planned. A lot of times developers don't even know how to solve the problem until they get into it, or they do know how to do it. And it's all based on a bunch of theoretical documentation, which could just be wrong. So, so, you know, the whole point of this is to try to, you know, help Help the developer um, release code iteratively. Don't go nuts about specific dates in specific days and measuring how many hours were spent developing a specific feature. Right? Yeah. And it all it all just leads to contention and and BS. Having estimates that be referred to as estimates, not commitments. Right. I like saying. I estimate that I'll be done in so many iterations, for example, which is a lot easier to do than to say I'll be done by this day. In the end, if you're doing an iterative model and then you're done midway through the iteration, you can't release it until the iteration is complete anyway. So who cares, right? Yeah. And if you have a granular system and you miss that one iteration well, you'll, and you have like a two-week thing, then hey, next one you'll be done. Now, I remember when I was completely opposed to all sort of all sorts of like estimating. And that was when I wasn't a manager, <laughs> but now it, it is helpful, you know, being a manager, it is helpful to know kind of how big you think this task is. And I think iterations, number of iterations or something is, is good because somebody's sure. saying it's a big deal and it might take, we're not sure it's going to take at least a month and it might take longer once we get into it. That's completely valid. But if it's things that's like, Oh, it's it's a little hairy, but yeah, I can get it done in like half a day. Uh, right. I think it's also important to try to practice, even if you're not asked to practice estimating stuff of like, I agree. It's a skill. How long do I think this is going to take? And then measure myself. Even if you're not telling anybody, uh, getting better at guessing how long something's going to take. Something um, I used, uh, I did recently was uh, um, I can say, hey, I think I can as like the team or whatever, because I was kind of in a teammate situation. Um, I think the team can have these set of features done by this quarter, and then I will give you more details as we get closer, right? And so once you enter the quarter, you kind of have an idea if it'll be done at the start of the quarter, midway through, or at the end, right? And then you go from there on and say, oh, I, I need two or three more iterations to finish it up. And, you know, depending on what kind of project you're on, scheduling sometimes has to coordinate with other teams. So it's a, it's a necessary evil, but yeah, anyway. Okay. Number seven is reward quick patching instead of solving. 
This is good. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times when people are under the gun trying to get something out, organizations, they tend to push that on to the engineers and be like, I need something I need now. And so if you keep pushing that, you will get, you know, a patch to the problem versus allowing somebody enough time to figure out the real root cause of the problem, which if you never find out what the problem is, then that leads to a whole bunch of other issues, which is all the scaffolding around code to try to make this work. And then it's all just very brittle because you don't really know what the underlying issue is. You know, there's something, but you don't know what it is, but there's no time for you to go figure that out. So as an organization, if you encourage that, you know, the quick fixes and get it done now kind of scenario, you know, that's also something that's going to, you know, lower quality uh, of your product. Now, that being said, I've seen it work okay in situations where a quick patch is possible to ease the pain uh, if there's a customer problem. Sure. Fix it quickly and then go back and do the correct fix. As long as you allow time in the schedule to go back and find the root cause and and make it more maintainable for for the future. Right. You know, so. a couple workarounds here and there just to kind of you know, get you through a uh, current situation and then to get to buy you the time to do the research. Great idea. Um, yeah. You got to be careful, though, because if there's not a good enough communication through the entire management chain, you might not get approval for those those yeah. real fixes. Uh, what, yeah. what, what do you mean? You already fixed it. Let's move on and right. put more features in. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Okay. Number eight is plan for today instead of tomorrow. So the idea here is, you know, I've been in many planning meetings where people prefer to hear everything is awesome version of your how things are working or how things might work. And sometimes you do actually have historical data that says, you know, when we touch this piece of code that has this interaction with these systems... That means we tend to have these types of problems, which take so long to debug and resolve. So therefore, your actual real thing for the average case based on the past two years of work is this much time. But if you do that, then, you know, you're you're planning ahead for the actual problems you might encounter. And since our goal is to produce a crappy product, you want to uh, um, not do that at all and just plan based on everything is always going to work the first go and there's not going to be any issues. You can't really do that. But it's amazing how much that, that comes up. I've actually heard, no, you're not allowed to plan for the for the average case. You have to plan for the best case several times in the past. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I remember being in a situation where we were working on the same team, working on two different projects, and the uh, instructions for estimating the project uh, for all the tasks involved was uh, in an ideal case, if you had nothing else to work on and no distractions, how long would th- this task take? So you're mm-hmm. estimating all those individually and and do that for another project. And then having somebody take all those numbers and say, well, we can clearly do both of these tasks at the same time and it's the best case number and let's just schedule for that anyway. And, look- and now you're committed to it and, and it's like, why aren't you done yet? It's not like you have any emergency problems or any customer issues to fix while you're writing your new features and, and, and nobody needs training and nobody goes on vacation. And yeah, well, another favorite is that people will plan something and they'll have like a release in like uh, December, right? Late December. And everybody's out on freaking Christmas vacation, man. Yeah. 
So now I feel ripped off, man. You told me that you were having nine steps, and the ninth is just the conclusion. <laughs> well, my, my fictional sales team told me that um, I had to ship the article. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't complete. <laughs> so, well, so that, was, that was the whole point, right? To, uh, we can come up with a bunch more stuff. You know, I just had to cut it off somewhere. It was an amusing take on it of how to do the wrong thing. I have to admit, if I consider working on somebody else's open source project, I clone the repository and I run the tests. And if there's not 100% coverage already, <laughs> I judge, I, I, I admit it, I judge open source projects on their code coverage number. Uh, mostly because I want to know if I'm adding new code, if I'm, if I write enough test cases to make sure that I'm testing that. And I know that just hitting 100% coverage isn't, doesn't guarantee that I've really tested everything, but it's, it at least is an indicator. So, sure, yeah. sure, agreed. In an open source, you know, you don't really have a lot of measure, so it's it, and you know, it's as long it's different when uh, you as an engineer read that number and understand the implications of it versus bringing it up in in a, a management release meeting in some organization or something like that where everybody's just like. Right. Looking at the number. And the communication mechanisms for distributed open source projects are completely different. So we have different guidelines. That's correct. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, cool. Um, well, thanks a lot for writing this article and coming on the show and help discussing it with me. Yeah. So it's been fun. No worries. Yeah. It's been fun. If anybody's interested in anything else related to uh, test or practicality of software development, or lately I've got this long. Um, series on continuous builds. Uh, feel free to swing by Try Accept Pass. On Twitter, you're Try Accept Pass also, right? At Try Accept Pass, that's correct. Yep. Cool. We'll keep up the good work, and I'll talk to you later. Thank you to Christian for this great interview. Keep up the great writing and teaching. And if you're looking for art ideas for your blog, I'm a huge fan of all things retro sci-fi, so rockets, UFOs, aliens, blasters, etc. Just a suggestion. Thank you to Patreon supporters for continuing to support the show. Join them by going to testingcode.com slash support. And thank you to Azure Pipelines for sponsoring this episode. Automate your builds and deployments with Pipelines so you spend less time with the nuts and bolts and more time being creative. Get started for free at azure.com slash pipelines. That's A-Z-U-R-E dot com slash pipelines. That link is also in the show notes at testingcode.com slash 92. Oh my gosh, 92. We're closing in on 100. So cool. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. Something.